Hi, and welcome to Tall Tales Uncovered. This is Joe Cummings. I am so glad you're listening in. Fellow history buffs, please share this podcast to help spread our great true history tales and do a rating review on Apple or whatever platform you're using. I love your comments and questions as they spark new tales. Welcome, everyone. Paul and Mary, we're so glad you've all recovered from your COVID attack. It looks like we're all comfortable here in the family room. Pete, I'm glad you're here. For the folks listening in, Pete is a retired fireman. And before a funeral the other day, he was telling us about an old tale he heard about a hotel being blown up in a huge fire in Enid when the downtown was all ablaze. Now that sounds like a tall tale indeed. Let's journey back to Enid, July 13th, 1901. The Enid Daily Wave reported that about half the 1901 wheat crop had been threshed and it panned out better than expected everywhere. The yield in bushel amounts is not as large as in previous years, but the quality is better, bringing better price. Corn, there's a total failure and prairie hay is awful scarce. The younger boys, Cole and his brothers who rode with Jesse James were recently rolled out of the Minnesota pen. They are to be employed selling gravestones and monuments, receiving $60 a month. They are not permitted to leave the state. O.J. Fleming, president of the Bank of Enid, the oldest bank in the county, announced a capital stock of $50,000. Randalls and Grubbs have just received a large shipment of fancy McAllister and Canyon City coal for prompt delivery to customers. Asia Sharp, the agent for the Ponca Oto of Missouri Indians, was found guilty of taking bribes by a Perry jury. Judge Burwell sentenced him to four years in the federal penitentiary at Fort Leavenworth and to pay a fine of $1,600. The Daily Wave editorial read, City Clerk Lewis is making an attempt to have the salary of the city clerk raised to $10 a month. He knew what the salary was when he sought the votes of the people. He should be satisfied. Most of the buildings around the downtown square were built of southern hard pine, with a few painted and some brick walls were beginning to be used. Wood sidewalks were a great addition. According to the Indian Fire Department history, the City Council on December 28, 1893, approved the appointment of a fire warden and assistant fire marshal, plus each business around the downtown square would be required to keep a barrel of water for protection against fire and six fire hand grenades, which were glass spears and they contained carbon tetrachloride and you were to throw them at the base of the fire. On February 23, 1894, the city accepted the offer of the Paps Brewing Company to buy Enid a hook and ladder truck. Summer of 1894 was especially extremely hot and dry, which sparked fire concerns. The Enid citizens purchased a large bell weighing 300 pounds and erected it on a wooden frame support on the public square. The belfry was on the west side of Grant, south of Broadway. It was called the Fire Bell. 
the city council passed ordinance number 34 regulating its ringing. A night watchman was employed for the square. It did little to ease the fear of fire since most realized Enid still lacked any real fire protection. The Daily Wave of Friday, July 12, 1901 reported a huge fire erupted at 3 p.m. yesterday, 14 miles west of Enid on Bill Haggard's place, sparked by a thresher engine. The fire consumed three farms, destroying 2,200 bushels of wheat. Haggard lost three stacks of wheat containing 1,800 bushels of wheat. The Enid Daily Wave commented, this is another one of those warnings about fire. More than that, it was the last warning. At midnight on Saturday night, July 13, 1901, the fire bell was silent as a fire broke out in the rear of Snyder and Long's secondhand store, 721 North Grand. The fire had a really good start before being discovered. The inside of the building was completely covered in flames. The fire exploded, going rapidly north, south, east, and west. The Gensman brothers, adjoining on the north, had a brick wall, but the flames leaped through the second floor window and consumed the entire interior with such heat and so quickly that many thought the fire started in that building. Fire traveled south incredibly fast, completely destroying the Beehive Restaurant Building, Central Hotel, Malden and Sun Furniture Store, Piddlewitz Meat Market, Oddfellows Hall, Yankee's Home Residence, Blacksmith Shop, and a small tenement house. Just as the start of the beginning of the fire, the fire completely cleared everything on Grand Avenue south to Cherokee Avenue. The Enid Daily Wave recorded that the fire and going east consumed totally the two-story frame lodging house owned by Unger and McGee, the warehouse of the Ginsman Brothers, and the home of Mrs. Dinah War. This part of the fire burned east, destroying everything until it reached a creek and it burned out. Several thousand men, women, and children had gathered and lined the streets downtown as close to the fire as they could get. In spite of that, no town on earth can produce more hard, earnest workers at a fire than Enid. Nearly everybody able to work was busy carrying out goods or clearing out buildings to head off the fire, reported the Enid Daily Wave. That time, Enid had no organized fire department, but volunteers were chosen at the moment of need. They had a two-wheeled cart with 500 feet of hose and a horse-drawn Paps Blue Ribbon hook and ladder. Fire bosses were with different minds were way too numerous, summed it up in the end of daily wave. The water supply was too small, so only one stream of water could be applied, whereas if they had water, six streams of water could have been applied. 
One of the most astonishing movements was that many of the ladies arranged their hair beautifully before they came to the fire. Every baby in town was put to sleep in this little buggy, ready to free, flee from the frames. Noted the Ely Daily Way. Joe Dodson was watching the fire from his office window when he noticed the roof of Battery's warehouse was on fire. He yelled at a fellow in the street who climbed to the roof and tramped out the fire. Neither man knew the warehouse was loaded with gasoline. Mr. Perlowitz went to get his horse out of the barn while numerous Enos residents carried all of his belongings to safety before his place burnt. He believed in keeping his money underneath his mattress, which was $1,200, which was a huge sum in those days. But when he went to retrieve his bed, his money was gone. A group of men guarded the land office, which the Daily Wave said wasn't worth a load of wood and didn't need guarding anyway. The fire had leaped across Grand Avenue to a large building called the Opera House. It became a roaring, smoking mass of flames which leaped into the heavens and illuminated the entire city, throwing burning embers high above, some of which lit still burning in Kenwood Edition, which was eight blocks away. The fire spread south and west, destroying in minutes the Saturday Bakery buildings and leaping across the alley to embrace the doomed St. Joe Hotel. Judge Roach, who owned St. Joe Hotel, was there with his sons, minus uh, his son Jake, and his neighbors, and they were all working hard to save the Roach home on the south side of the hotel. But meanwhile, Jake Roach, was bent down and was crawling underneath the St. Joe Hotel, which was in the southwest area of Enos Downtown Square. He carefully cradled his bundle of 18 sticks of dynamite. Jake placed six dynamite sticks under the east corner of the hotel, another six under the center of the hotel, and the last six under the southwest hotel corner. Jake lit the fuse. It was an amazing scene. Two blocks completely inflamed, the opera house shooting fire into the dark night sky and thousands of people of all ages in the street. The wooden sidewalks had flames to look like a guardrail of fire before the buildings and a totally unexpected, massive explosion of fire and wood as Jake's 18 sticks of dynamite blew up the St. Joe Hotel. The hotel shattered and crumbled down with a huge, huge crash. Jake had placed himself and the Enid residents in extreme danger. But as it turned out, no one was hurt and the fire, it stopped going south. Jake became a hero of the fire as he stopped the fire, saved his family home, and maybe he saved Enid. The Daily Wave noted, and going west from the Opera House, the fire leaped from building to building in quick order, destroying Mrs. Hassler's building, the Armor Packing Plant, Ike Hirschfield Sheep Clothing Conservatory, 
Ferguson Law Office, the Joe Restaurants, the Montezuma Hotel, the best hotel in the city, the Cleavinger Building, the Waverly Building, and the building occupied by Bray's Coming Events. The shacks next to Bray's, owned by Mrs. H.E. Lee, were torn down by Enid residents. They did their work so well that they stopped the fire from spreading any more west. Only two buildings were left standing on the south side of the square, and they were heavily damaged. Two blocks were a smoldering ruin, and 30 businesses, homes, and buildings were completely destroyed. Amazingly, there was no injury or loss of life. Major Fabian made sure the still-burning ruins were guarded on all sides to keep the fire from starting again. The losses were being totaled. They were quite staggering. Ginsman's brothers lost 37,500. St. Joe Hotel, which was obviously totally lost, was 2,000. Central Hotel was 1,800. Oddfellows Hall was 2,500. Randall's and Crumb, 5,000. Ian and Buggy House was 4,000. And Wholesale Grocery was 8,000 to name a few. Snyder's secondhand store, where the fire started, showed a loss of $900 with no insurance, so he lost everything. The estimate for loss was $97,900 with a total amount of $20,000 of insurance coverage. Most carried no insurance. The insurance companies would pay after 60 days, but one could get paid at once if the insured accepted the money at a discount, which meant they received less money. The lots where the opera house once stood are and became for sale. The Enid residence rose right up literally from the ashes. Ginsman brothers opened in a tent. They had their safe dug out on the hot ground, would have to cool for a few days. Randalls and Grubb built a rough temporary shed on the scorched earth right in front of their burnout store. The buggy shop reopened at noon. Tents and temporary sheds were springing up everywhere. No one talked about quitting. Grant Yakey started building a permanent wood frame blacksmith shop and was told to quit. He pulled a gun on the city marshal and he was knocked down with the gun being taken away. No more frame buildings will be allowed in that area. Judge Michael Roach will rebuild the St. Joe Hotel as a three-story brick building. It was painfully aware to all that Enid needed a fire department. The volunteer firemen had several sections of valuable hose burned up simply because no one was in charge. Spanners and other attachments from the horse cart were left all over. A nozzle set was still at Gillespie Saloon. Three days after the fire, a special session of the city council met to discuss the formation of a volunteer fire department. On December 6, 1901, the city council made the hero of the fire, Jay Groach, the fire chief of the volunteer fire department. On March 20, 1902, 
The Phoenix finally rose from the ashes and the city council approved the formation of the Union Fire Department. The first chief was L.O. Pillsbury. The award for the most positive outlook and spirit of this whole event would go to the Decker Brothers on South Grand Avenue. They decorated the roof of their business with numerous handsomely painted barrels filled with water to use in case of fire. Attached to the barrels were big jugs of Red Top and Old Mac whiskey for the boys throwing water on the fire. As the Enid Daily Wave responded, that is a capital D and a great idea indeed. Holy moly, that was a tall tale for the ages. Kyle Cole, I'm so glad you're here. What's that? Did they have electric lights yet? Well, that's a great question. Well, it's my understanding that Mayor Mybergen just flipped a switch on the first electric light in the unit at a special ceremony in 1899, just a while before this fire. So the new invention was expanding an unit. What did you say, Sarah? Another good question. The origin of the fire has remained a complete mystery. It might have been spontaneous combustion of grease rags laying among cans of furniture polish or started by some sick arsonist. It really, it was never discovered. It certainly makes us appreciate the fire department we have today. Thank you all for meeting here today and a big thank you to all of you listening to this podcast. This is Joe Cummings and I so appreciate this time with you. Don't forget to share this podcast to keep our history alive. Well, time for us to head home. See you next time on Tall Tales Uncovered.